God doesn't love you. And anyway, you're far too small and insignificant for him to bother about you. And the troubles that you're going through at this time, it's your own fault. Lies, all lies. Maybe whispered by others, but certainly entertained in our own minds from time to time. We believe the lies. We hear the lies. Lies certainly that ran through Naomi's head as we read about her in the book of Ruth. Although although the world that she inhabited 3,000 years ago was quite different from ours, the situation that she was facing was so similar in many ways. And it's all captured for us in one of the most beautiful histories that have ever been written. So hang on in there with us as we look at this amazing book over the next four Sunday mornings. Now, just in case you haven't found where Ruth is located in your Bible, you'll find it comes after Joshua and Judges. And the reason it's there is it neatly bridges us into the stories of 1 and 2 Samuel, which introduce us to Ruth's great-grandson, David, Israel's greatest king. But if you were coming at it from the Jewish scrolls read in the synagogues, you'd find Ruth either comes after the Song of Songs with its focus on love or after the book of Proverbs and therefore flows directly from the chapter on the ideal wife. So you get some sort of idea how it's regarded and the place that Ruth holds in Old Testament history. But I need to say something else before we jump in. Although this book is very old, it has been put together with remarkable skill and deliberate symmetry. So whatever you do, don't for one moment imagine that this has been clumsily compiled because it's so old. Rather, there's an art to this that far outshines contemporary novels. Every word counts. Every word is in its right place. And although we won't have time to go into every detail, there's a rich complexity here that merits further investigation. But but let's get into the first chapter of the book, which represents a clear section in the story. And it gives three principles to follow as contrasted with what the characters in the story do. The first principle is this, trust in God's promises. Trust in God's promises. For this is what an ordinary family living just south of Jerusalem didn't do. Ruth chapter 1 verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah together with his wife and two sons went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was 
Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, this name, this place, Moab, is going to crop up regularly in this opening chapter. And we're to view Moab as we would view a pantomime villain. Now, I remember going to watch Peter Pan at the Richmond Theatre. And whenever Captain Hook came on stage, or even if his name was mentioned, we were to boo and hiss. And really, that's how the Israelites viewed Moab. Even though they could almost see the hills of Moab across the Dead Sea from where they were in Bethlehem, it was a bad place. It was founded actually through the incestuous link of Lot and his daughters, and it was a nation that was characterized as being aggressive and deceitful. When the Israelites were traveling up out of slavery from Egypt to go to Canaan, the Moabites engaged a guy called Balaam to go and try and curse them. And then when that failed, they used their women to go and seduce the Israelite men. No, Moab was a bad place. And yet we find Elimelech taking his family there. Although the writer makes it clear that they had strong links within the land that God had given to his people. Their clan is named. They were Ephrathites. Their tribe is named Judah. And their town is named Bethlehem. Now, their reasons for leaving seemed quite reasonable. Although they lived in a town called House of Bread, that's what Bethlehem means, there wasn't any. It was a time of famine, and in subsistence cultures, that was incredibly worrying. And more than that, this all took place, as we're told, during the days when the judges ruled. Now, these weren't judicial professionals. These were military enforcers who helped look after the various tribes that had been settling in that land. And the book of Judges is full of stories of wickedness and depravity and especially violence against women. So we mustn't rush into condemning Elimelech for his actions. The writer doesn't condemn him, and nor must we. And no doubt Elimelech justified his actions with that phrase that we can see there in verse 2. It's only for a while. It'll soon be over. We can soon come back to our land when everything's sorted. But three of the four never returned. Verse 3. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. 
After they had lived there about 10 years, both Marlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. How devastating to be left alone in a society with no one to protect you or to provide for you. How sad when your children die before you. And what's more, it's implied the sons hadn't had children of their own. So Naomi was all alone in a strange and far country. She is now as empty as the land she once left behind. And yet, every Jewish reader of this little book knew That as the Israelites approached their promised land when they were coming out of Egypt and they were traveling across the wilderness and going to the land that God had promised, God had warned them through Moses of disobedience, don't disobey. He told the people that if they deserted God, then they'd reap the consequences of their actions. Famine being one such judgment. But God had also promised that if the people turned back to him and trusted in his promises, then he would respond in mercy and grace. But it would seem that Elimelech and Naomi hadn't waited upon God. They didn't stay in the land. They took things into their own hands to find their own solutions. And now... Naomi is alone and bitter. And could I say in passing, this is an illustration of what some listening to this message have experienced in their own lives. Perhaps they made some sort of Christian profession. Perhaps they were raised in a Christian home. But it didn't seem to deliver what they wanted, so they left it far behind to find their own satisfaction. Well, how's that worked out for you? Have you found what you're looking for? Have you found that deep soul satisfaction and meaning? Well, perhaps like... Naomi, it's time to return home. The first principle here, therefore, is trust in God's promises. The second principle is hear God's encouragements. Hear God's encouragements. Verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab, boo, that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. See, word travels fast, even into a far country. The Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God, has been faithful to his promises. He has powerfully intervened for his people. And so Naomi prepares her extended household of three women to travel to Bethlehem. And here the writer uses a word that deliberately crops up a dozen times in this chapter. It's the word return. 
It's not always translated that way in the English, but in the Hebrew, it's the same word. Return. Return. It's the word that clearly forms the main idea that we're to grasp from this chapter. You see, what this chapter is telling us is that we're to trust in the even greater thing that God has done for us in Jesus and to return to him. But as they set off on the journey, Naomi speaks to her two daughters-in-laws. It comes in three sections of what she said. The first section deals with the mercy and the grace of God. Let's read from verse 8. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness if you, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. Now, Naomi was well aware that her daughters-in-law would find it far easier to get new husbands in Moab, along with the provision, along with the protection that meant, than if they traveled with her. You see, they knew Moab. They were at home there. Better there than living as refugees in another country. And her prayer for them was that they might know Yahweh's mercy and kindness. In fact, the special Hebrew word used here is chesed. It's often the word translated as grace. Because Naomi realized that they had shown the same kindness. They'd shown a godlike grace to her and to their husbands while they lived. Naomi knew that Yahweh's kindness extended beyond national borders. Yahweh's kindness was able to reach people everywhere. The trouble was, Naomi wasn't connecting that with her own life. She knew the teaching that Yahweh's grace and kindness extends to all, but she didn't apply it to herself. But in the face of Orpah and Ruth's refusal, Naomi moves on to her second speech, which gives us a taster of a theme that's going to re-emerge later in the story and that we'll be looking at in chapter 3 and 4. It's to do with special marriage regulations, and, and it seems to be in here, so we're just alerted to what's going to happen later. Let me read from verse 11. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you. Because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Well, that, that does it for Orpah. She displayed all the loyalty expected in that culture. But now Naomi truly frees her. 
to return to Moab and to find a husband. And, and by the way, in case your feminist sensibilities are offended by this, try not to judge a patriarchal society by the standards that we have 3,000 years later. This was the reality if a widowed woman wanted to survive then at that period. But then Naomi's third and shortest, shortest speech is addressed to Ruth. And it's very revealing. Verse 14. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Two things emerge. Do you notice Naomi doesn't say to Ruth, go back to your people and your gods. Rather, it's your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods go back with her. You see, Naomi doesn't identify Ruth with the gods of Moab. It looks as if something has happened. It looks as if Ruth has come to know and understand who Yahweh is from the example and from the teaching that she'd heard and seen from the family. You see, for one thing, she clings to Naomi. And that word is often used in covenant, binding relationships. And secondly, as Ruth goes on to speak, she uses covenant language as she replies to Naomi in one of the most moving speeches. Verse 16. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. See, this is covenant language. This echoes the promises that God made to his people. This is a woman from Moab now swearing by the name of Yahweh. This is about identity and solidarity, about destination and devotion. This is Ruth echoing God talk. But Naomi doesn't hear. Once again, when confronted with the reality of God's covenant kindness as seen and heard through Ruth, Naomi fails to hear it. She fails to take comfort in what God is clearly encouraging her with through Ruth. It would actually seem that Naomi really did not want Ruth to come with her. Perhaps she saw Ruth's presence as a woman from Moab, a liability in Jewish society. Or perhaps the extra demands of another mouth to feed. Or perhaps Ruth's presence would be a constant painful reminder of that time in Moab. Whatever the reason, we're not told. 
although the writer does suggest that Naomi then stopped talking to Ruth for the remainder of the journey. The NIV puts a gentler slant to it by translating it as Naomi stopped urging her, but actually, literally, it's Naomi stopped talking to her. It would seem she really didn't want Ruth to be with her. Look, let me ask you, let me ask you, do you connect your theology with the living God? You see, you may be orthodox in your Christian understanding, but have you really grasped the depths of God's amazing grace towards you? You see, maybe you you sing about the death of Jesus on Calvary's cross, but have you grasped its full dimensions? You've experienced love and mercy from many in the family of faith, but still you can't see how God loves you. You can listen to a thousand sermons, but never really hear one of them. That's Naomi's experience. So much looking down at the problems that she couldn't look up to see God's gracious hand at work. I wonder if that's your experience right now. Surrounded by the problems and the hurt and the tears and the pain and the anxiety and you're so consumed by those things that you're unable to hear what God has been saying to you. Okay, that leads us to our final point. Our final point is this. The final principle is this. See God's grace. We've seen that we should trust in God's promises and hear God's encouragements, but finally we need to see God's grace. Verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? See, the town was excited. After 10 years, Naomi had come home. And actually, to to emphasize, she's no longer in Moab. Boo. The writer uses the name Bethlehem twice. So the women, two women went on until they came to Bethlehem, when they arrived in Bethlehem. She's no longer in Moab, she's in Bethlehem. But can you imagine the effect on her appearance? Losing a husband and your two sons would have gnarled and aged her. The gray hair peeping from under her head covering was obvious. And she wasn't dancing with joy. Verse 20. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. By the way, if you've got those two verses open before you, what is the most repeated word there? It's the word me. In fact, me, my, and I occur eight times in the space of two verses. You see, Naomi is consumed by her suffering. 
It's all she can think about. It's all she can talk about. And whilst Naomi doesn't doubt God's existence, she does doubt his goodness. It's his fault. He did this. He let me leave with a family, but brought me back without one. He afflicted me. He brought misfortune on me. Now, the writer doesn't blame Naomi for such a reaction. In fact, the Bible is packed full of people who, in the middle of suffering, ask where God is. Most notably, Jesus Christ himself, who cried out on the cross as he experienced God's wrath for sins, not his own, quoted words from Ruth's great-grandson. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you may be feeling that way this morning. You're going through some terrible times. COVID is only adding to your pain and misery. But if you're going to address your complaint to anyone, let it go to God. Speak to him. Ask him. Wait for him. For in our story, there's a beautiful irony. As Naomi speaks out her complaint that God has brought her back empty, there's someone standing quietly alongside her. The Moabites, Ruth. You see, Naomi's back in Bethlehem. Loving, faithful Ruth is with her. We are told the harvest is beginning. But in her grief, she doesn't have the eyes to see the superabounding grace of a faithful God. And as we come to the final sentence in this opening passage, the writer adds a delightful touch that we don't see in our English translation. In the, in the NIV 11 versions that we use, we read this in verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. But actually, a more literal translation would read this. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who returned to Bethlehem with her as the barley harvest was beginning. Ruth returned to Bethlehem. Ruth in the Hebrew is the subject of that sentence. Ruth returned to Bethlehem. But she'd never been there before. How could it be? Well, the writer is making the point that although Ruth was far from that country, wicked Moab, boo, with all its evil gods, Ruth had come home. She was where she ought to be. She'd come to the country that she was always looking for. C.S. Lewis concludes his Narnia series with a description of God's kingdom 
in the final book in the series called The Last Battle. He writes this, it was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed, and then he cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Come further up, come further in. And for some of you listening, the call is to come home to the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness and the peace that God alone offers you in Christ. You feel your sin, you sense your lack. You see in Jesus, the friend of sinners, so come home. Leave the far country. Trust him. A long time ago, I organized a special gospel week at the church I was working for in Plumstead, which is in southeast London. We booked the evangelist, Roger Carswell, and housed him with the church secretary and her husband, Carl. Now, Carl wasn't a Christian, but the whole church was praying for him. He came to every meeting, but nothing. He heard great gospel messages, but nothing. Until after one of the final meetings, a tired Roger Carswell turned to Carl and said, Carl, it's time to go home. Whereas Roger just wanted to get back to his digs, and that's what he meant, Carl's heart was broken. He wanted to go home to Jesus. And that evening simply looked to him as the saviour of his soul. My friends, wherever you're coming from, whatever you've done, like Ruth, it's time to come home. Let's pray. Sovereign God, we want to thank you for this beautiful, this glorious story. Thank you for all the ways that you gave Naomi warnings and helps. Father, help us not to be like her or Elimelech. May rather we be those who see your grace at work and in operation. Help us to apply the truths that many of us already know to our own hearts and lives. Forgive us that we become so self-focused that we don't look up to you and see you in operation. And Father, we do realize that there are some listening to this message who've been living in Moab, they've been living in the far country whose hearts ache for home. Thank you that it is in Jesus 
that we find, all we look for. Thank you that it's in the Lord Jesus Christ that we find that abundant, satisfying life. Thank you that it's through Jesus and his work on Calvary's cross that we find something far greater than an abundance of food. We find an abundance of mercy and grace. And thank you for the way that this story points us to Jesus. Father, if we're in the far country, may we be those who even this morning seek you, trust you, and come home. And we ask it in your name and for your glory. Amen.